Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Cool Hand Grace Podcast. Another week and another biblical passage awaits for us to explore. Our goal is to gain insight and application from God's Word that can encourage us in our day-to-day lives. I'm Pastor Kurt Witzig, and on behalf of the College Ministry at Duluth Bible Church, welcome. It's Christmas time, and what better time to look into our next passage in Luke, chapter 18, verses 15 through 17, because this passage is about children, and Christmas is a highlight of the year for children. And children often are the highlight of the year for those who love them. A lot can be learned from children, and from Christmas, and from love. All such things that are on display for us to ponder this week. As you know, we have been moving through the mid-chapters of Luke on the, this podcast, finishing last time with the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector praying at the temple in the earlier part of chapter 18. And fresh on our memory is the end of the Pharisee and tax collector parable where Jesus says, Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And this week we'll see that our scene shifts to a dialogue now that Jesus has with his disciples about children. The disciples have spent several years by now with Jesus. They have followed him. They've listened to him. They've spent tons of time with him. They've believed him. And yet they did not necessarily share his heart. As understudies, we can be slow learners. And Jesus' heart, we'll see, is a heart for all people evidenced by the stories leading up to this one. There was the account of poor and sick Lazarus, the healing of the ten lepers, and the tax collector leaving the temple justified. And now we will see his heart for little children. Our story begins in Luke chapter 18 and verse 15, where we read, They also brought infants to him that he might touch them. You see, people, parents, presumably, were bringing children to Jesus so he could touch them. This account is also found in Matthew and in Mark, as well as here in Luke, and they're almost virtually the same, but there's a few little extras that will help us. Luke, by the way, for infants, uses the term brephos, which means typically infant. He uses it one time, but then two more references in verses 15 through 17, he'll refer to them as little children, and a different Greek word, paeda. Matthew uses Pieta both times, as he uses the term twice in his account, and Mark uses Pieta for all three of the references to children in his account. So between the three accounts, we have eight references to children, seven times the term for little children, Pieta, is used, 
one time brephos is used for infant. The only time here is the first occurrence in Luke. So what this would indicate then is, is that the ch parents are bringing children of a variety of ages to Jesus, and Luke is adding this term uh, brephos to suggest that not only were there little children of various ages, but some were even bringing their infants. Now, bringing children to a rabbi for a blessing was fairly common, as, as they would lay hands on the child or lay a hand on him and pray for a blessing. Matthew's account even adds that Jesus might put his hands on them to pray, it says. So this is a biblical tradition even, set forth by God himself back in Numbers chapter 6 and verse 22 through 27. We can read this. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name on the children of Israel, and I will bless them. So that uh, blessing that they were to give to children and to read in number six there, that actually gets repeated and used and part of Jewish custom on the Sabbath, on most Sabbaths, where the parent, or if possible even a rabbi, would give this blessing to the children as part of the Sabbath ritual. And so you see God's heart toward children. This was an important thing. He wanted children to feel welcome and to be a part of the family, to be a part of the ritual, to be a part of the Sabbath. And they are objects then, clearly, of God's care and grace and appreciated. They matter. And by the way, this reference here in Luke 18 is not infant baptism, as we saw. There's, there's no water here, and there's a variety of ages of the children by the terminology used in the other passages as well as this one. Now, what happens is they brought infants to him that he might touch them. The parents were doing this, but when the disciples saw it, as we go on in Luke 18, they rebuked them. They rebuked the parents. Rebuke here is an interesting word that's used in the Greek. It means a rebuke without any real result on the person who's being rebuked, <laughs> bringing no conviction to them or of a fault. It's like, it's the word used when Peter rebuked the Lord and said, no, that's not going to happen to you, etc. It had no result on Jesus. Now, why are they rebuking them, especially when the rebuke isn't effective at all? Well, the, the text doesn't say, but clearly they're showing a different perspective toward children than Jesus, the man they are following and learning from, and who they consider their spiritual leader. Perhaps a cultural perspective was dominating their thinking, maybe that children was, was women's work and they were to care for them and, you know, children are to be seen but not heard or something, I don't know. Uh, but I know that when a child is at its bar mitzvah, uh, when they become young teens, that's when they maybe become more on the radar. Maybe they thought Jesus is serious, He's a serious, uh, talking about serious things, and he's, you know, he's, he's, he's a spiritual giant, and he's important, so get these children out of here. They're, they're less than, they're secondary. Well, in Mark's account, in chapter 10, verse 14, he says this, When Jesus saw it, these disciples rebuking the parents, when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased. And the word means indignant, against what is wrong. So the disciples rebuking and stopping the parents, preventing them from coming, it was wrong. And this was amazing. 
because why are the disciples doing this when in Mark chapter 9, verse 33 through 37, we're going to read this account, which was probably just a day or two earlier. We read in verse 33, Then Jesus came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? They had been talking to themselves as they were approaching Capernaum, but they kept silent. For on the road, they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And so he sat down and called the twelve and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him, the child, in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So, just a few days earlier, Jesus had instructed them in this story. And now they're preventing parents from bringing little children to Jesus? So he's displeased, the Lord is. And he corrects his disciples by telling them what to do. Don't prevent them. Let them come. And then he gives them some instruction, as we'll see, about children in the kingdom. But I love how he, he intercedes here and he corrects his disciples, but it's not with insult. He's not belittling them. He's not shaming them. But he does correct them. And so we get to verse 16. Jesus called them, the disciples, to, or excuse me, called them the children to him. And he called them, and he said, Let the children come to me, and do not forbid them to the disciples. So, come, children, and to the disciples, don't prevent them. The reason at the end of verse 16 is, For of such is the kingdom of God. This clause is giving now the reason for the imperative commands about, Let the children come, and don't prevent them. The kingdom of God consists of such. This is a descriptive word. It's the saying the occupants of the kingdom of God are, are, have you, are like children in ways. In fact, some versions translate the kingdom of God belongs to those like these children. And then he says in verse 17, his point, Assuredly, I say to you, which means this is something of high importance. Take notice. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter into it. This clause is setting forth a condition that needs to be met. To receive, to receive is to indicate approval or a conviction by accepting or to be open to. And what is it that you're receiving or accepting we see? It's the reign of God. The kingdom of God. That's where the king reigns. That is where Jesus is king. He is God. He is ultimate authority and sovereign. And we receive the kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus, as a little child. And this then, along with what we've already seen, is going to involve, with the other stories in Luke, Mark 9 and such, this involves humility and submission, teachability to the teacher, curiosity and wonder. And so we receive the kingdom and the king with a sense of humility, curiosity, wonder, submission, etc. By no means, he says, without that way, no means will you enter into the kingdom. It's the strongest negative, ume, in the Greek language. And so 
in Mark 10, verse 16, he goes on, it says that he took them up in his arms, these children, and laid his hands on them and blessed them. And so he took the children up in his arms. And this is a picture of receiving the kingdom in a sense, because look, we don't read about the kids squirming or resisting like a young man resists the young boy resisting the, the kiss of his aunt or something like that. I mean, picture it. Here's a child with a smile on his face, this young boy, even admiration for Jesus, a very positive scene. And he's saying we're to be like children, but are we as children? We need to be childlike. This is essential. This is necessity, Jesus is saying. To be taken up in his arms? What? Oh, the masculine man might resist this. We might resist this thought. But what we're doing then is we're resisting being loved, being held, being not in control. Resists because we're trying to impress. Resists humility. So, Jesus takes the children up into his arms, a place of security, a place of comfort, a place of belonging, a place of being under, a place that we're well pleased to be in. And so we have this scene then with Jesus having a young child in his arms and others and blessing them, approving of them, wanting the children to come to him. Of such is the kingdom of God. And we need to receive the kingdom as a child, receive his reign in the king as a child. What are some characteristics of a child? Children are have great curiosity and teachability. In fact, children expect to be taught. Life is ever learning. They have creativity and imagination. They have openness even about emotions and feelings. Children can be very spontaneous. They're also correctable. They expect even to be corrected, part of being taught. And they easily show empathy. Children can be very exuberant and energetic, and they have laughter, often coming from the belly, that deep laughter. And they don't overanalyze or overthink things, typically. They're not overly self-conscious. In fact, they're readily trusting. They have easy forgiveness, undying love and hope. They're powerless on their own, and so they need love and care. Christmas, what a time to see all of this in children. What is Christmas to a child? Think, it's like this enchanted time, full of lights and decorations and stories with a touch of magic in them. And there's lots of curiosity. And they're with family if they have family. And it's a time to make and give gifts and a time even to look forward to receiving gifts. There's the traditional stories and there's the movies and the songs and the carols and a, conf a confluence of the Christian story of baby Jesus and the incarnation mixed with life in their town and in their environment, the decorations and the lights and the Merry Christmases and the songs and the carols and the cookies and the meals, and it all melds into one for the child, a great sense of excitement and anticipation and wonder, and it's connected to Jesus and his birth and that he loves them. Christmas is a remarkable time, and children have this innocence and excitement and even humility as it, and we think is how they readily accept and, endure, and, and have an endearment for Christmas. So we are, even to use that illustration like it is for the kingdom and the king, we have that same for Jesus, the baby who grew up and is now the Lord and Savior. 
You know, Luke chapter 2, verse 8, the famous Christmas story of the shepherds in the field and the angels then come in verse 8. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were greatly afraid. And then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Look at that scene, an angel appearing to shepherds out in the middle of the night in a field. And the angel brings good tidings, tidings of great joy, which will be for who? To all people. Good news, great joy for everyone. Why? For the Savior is born, who is Christ the Lord. So glory to God in the highest, they say, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. This announcement of the Savior, this King who has come to earth, this this brings a presence of joy and a peace offered to all humanity. And Christmas, Christmas is the announcement then of good news, The gospel story is unfolding before the shepherd's eyes. The incarnation, God becoming human, God with us, Emmanuel. Jesus has entered the world where he will eventually die, but he'll do so willingly, and he'll do so for all of us, for you, for all humanity. And this death, his death, translates then into good news to be proclaimed. It's the best news ever. Because with his death and corresponding resurrection, Jesus takes our sin and he removes it. He identifies with it and dies for you and me. He is the Savior of the world, and through him we then are offered joy and peace and righteousness to be in right standing with God. Simple, simply by faith to trust. A simple trust that God does love you and Jesus died for you. And he is able then to give you the gift of life, this gift to you. And we just are called to believe. And Christmas is the time for believing, to know that God loves you, that God gave his only son to die for you, and that if you believe in him, you will not perish but you will have everlasting life, so the Bible says. This is good news, for unto us is born a Savior, Christ the Lord. Shout it out. Go tell it on the mountain. Peace to all the earth and good tidings and goodwill. And so do you know him, friends, Jesus Christ? Is he your Savior? Is he the hero of your story? You know he can be, and he's willing to be right now. Just know by faith that all this good news is true. This all happened, and that God loves you and is now seeking you, and he has the gift of eternal life for you, and you take it by faith alone. No pledges, promises, efforts, rituals. This is all of him, 
It's by him and it's a gift with your name on it under your tree for you, free. By grace, you are saved by faith. So it's all for you. So may you be convinced and persuaded that you can know that you have eternal life, as 1 John 5, 13 tells us. And you can know you're a child of God, a child, like at Christmas time. What a description of children. Remember this wonderful relationship that we can have with our loving Father. We belong and we're accepted in this family and he wants us there. We're a child of the king. Yes, you, me. And that means you can wander into his executive boardroom during an important meeting and he'll stop and he'll say, hi there, come here and sit. I want everyone to see this is my child. You'll be welcome. Romans fourteen seventeen reminds us that the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. These were mentioned, peace and joy, in the Luke 2 account. Peace on earth, goodwill to men, tidings of great joy. May you know these and have these. Christmas and children and the humility of faith, of such is the kingdom of God. Behold it, take hold of it now. But all of these wonderful characteristics of children, their, their, their uh, spontaneity, and they easily show empathy, and their willingness to believe and take you at your word, and this easy forgiveness, this undying hope and love, all of these wonderful characteristics of children, of such is the kingdom of God. Wow. That gets broken down, doesn't it? It gets jaded in the real world and the world that we typically find ourselves wading through. They get disrupted, confused as we encounter sin and brokenness in our world. And we become jaded and we hold grudges and we stay angry and we refuse to forgive and we lose hope as, as hopes have been dashed too many times and we find solace and routine and ritual and performance and hide behind that and, and are afraid of relationships and we become not like children. We get complicated and cynical. We lose the enchantment and the wonder and the awe, even though we're children of God. Our, our lives can become a bit rude and hurtful and demanding and competitive, in short, very adult-like. We feel bad when someone is good, and we feel good when someone is bad. And like the disciples, we have a pecking order. We want to know who's going to be the greatest, and I want to get ahead of you, and I got to get ahead of him and her. Oh, for that childlike simplicity and humility and love. That's the real mark of our maturity, is to become more childlike in that thinking, our thinking. I'm reminded of this in a story that is a short story. I'm going to read it uh, and make a few observations. It uh, says this. It's called Hi There. It was Sunday, Christmas. Our family had spent the holidays in San Francisco with my husband's parents. But in order for us to be back at work on Monday, we found ourselves driving the 400 miles back home to Los Angeles on Christmas Day. And we stopped for lunch in King City. The restaurant was nearly empty. We were the only family and ours the only children. And I heard Eric, my one-year-old, squeal with glee. Hi there. Hi there. He pounded his fat baby hands, whack, whack, on the metal high chair tray. His face was alive with excitement, eyes wide, gums bared in a toothless grin. He wriggled and chirped and giggled, and then I saw the source of his merriment. 
and my eyes could not take it all in at once. A tattered rag of a coat, obviously bought by someone else eons ago, dirty, greasy, and worn. Baggy pants, spinely body, toes that poked out of would-be shoes, a shirt that had ring around the collar all over, and a face like none other, gums as bare as Eric's. Hi there, baby! Hi there, big boy! I see ya, buster! My husband and I exchanged a look that was a cross between what do we do and poor devil. Our meal came and the cacophony continued. Now the old bum was shouting across the room, Do you know patty cake? Atta boy! Do you know peekaboo? Hey, look, he knows peekaboo! Eric continued to laugh and answer, Hi there! Every call was echoed. Nobody thought it was cute. The guy was a drunk and a disturbance. I was embarrassed. My husband, Dennis, was humiliated. Even our six-year-old said, Why is that old man talking so loud? Dennis went to pay the check, imploring me to get Eric and meet him in the parking lot. Lord, just let me get out be out of here before he speaks to me or to Eric. And I bolted for the door. It was soon was obvious that both the Lord and Eric had other plans. As I drew closer to the man, I turned my back, walking to sidestep him and any air he might be breathing. And as I did so, Eric, with his eyes riveted on his new friend, leaned for far over my arm, reaching with both his hands in a baby's pick-me-up position. And in a split second of balancing my baby and turning to counter his weight, I came to eye to eye with the old man. Eric was lunging for him, arms spread wide. And the bum's eyes both asked and implored, Would you let me hold your baby? There was no need for me to answer, because Eric propelled himself from my arms into the man's. Suddenly, a very old man and very young baby consummated their love relationship. Eric had his tiny head upon the man's ragged shoulder. The man's eyes closed, and I saw tears hover beneath his lashes. His aged hands, full of grime and pain and hard labor, gently, so gently, cradled my baby's bottom and stroked his back. I stood awestruck. The old man rocked and cradled Eric in his arms for a moment, and then his eyes opened and set squarely on mine, and he said in a firm, commanding voice, You take care of this baby. Somehow I managed, I will, from a throat that contained a stone. He pried Eric from his chest, unwillingly, longingly, as though he were in pain. I held my arms open to receive my baby, and again the gentleman addressed me. God bless you, ma'am. You've given me my Christmas gift. I said nothing more than a muttered thanks. With Eric back in my arms, I ran for the car. Dennis wondered why I was crying and holding Eric so tightly and why I was saying, my God, my God, forgive me. What a story. An undesirable, rough-cut bum and a beloved child and all his humility and innocence. A jaded life obviously impacted somewhere this bum had. By family, though. By love, somewhere in his past. And it wasn't forgotten. And so we see a breathtaking moment without judgment, without presuppositions. Those are left for the mother. Here's a delight in another person, a friendly banter, laughter, acceptance, and love. A love so basic, so real, it doesn't see all the complications, the reasons to ignore. It can't ignore. As love breaks through, humbling the mother as well. 
And our normal thinking might be, who is this bum? Why is he like this? Why is he so rough cut and hardened and disheveled and poor? Certainly he deserves this somewhere. Somewhere he's made bad decisions. He's maybe had an addiction to alcohol, probably not willing to work. Maybe he didn't, you know, he didn't save his money. He might be lazy. He probably has an entitlement mentality and he might even be dishonest, basically loser. And, you know, we evaluate in categories, we can even Christianize this kind of view. A recent study reported that Christians are more likely than other people to believe that people who are poor due to their own failings rather than to external external circumstances. The Washington Post reports when comparing demographics and religious factors, the odds of Christians saying poverty was caused by a lack of effort were over two times that of non-Christians. And compared to those with no religion, people didn't profess any faith, the odds of white evangelicals saying a lack of effort causes poverty were over three to one compared to them. You see, it seems like we have to get Christianized so we can see the world in this kind of cynical way. It's terrible. It's ironic because that's the opposite of what Jesus is about. The other side of the coin actually is even worse because if we think that all the poor deserved, and not all, but mostly, and they made bad decisions, that necessitates then that we see prosperity as earned as something we have deserved. Look what I've achieved via my own hard work. And I have this house or car, belongings, this zip code. I created much of these blessings and so forth. And where's the grace in either one of those views? Deserving or undeserving, the bum in the diner is a human being. Childlike faith accepts and sees only the humanness and laughs and enjoys and shows love. What holds the adult back? the judgment and the pecking orders and the cynicism. They deserve their misery. You know, we often might show the sentiments of Ebenezer Scrooge when asked if he would give money to the poor on that Christmas Eve and that famous uh, Christmas carol. And he said, are there no prisons? And the union workhouses, are they still in operation? And the poor laws in full vigor? Ah, didn't see any need. But let me ask, when Jesus came looking for you, were you in the deserved or undeserved poor category? When Jesus died for you, did you deserve that or was that undeserved? When he listens now and hears your prayers and walks with you, do you deserve that or is that undeserved? The fact that he cares for you and loves you and is with you always, Friends, this is grace. That's what grace is all about. The beggar and the king have the same inherent value. The king or the president or whoever and the beggar, same inherent value. Created by God. God is our maker. We have the Imad Jodea. Undeserved kindness and favor. Grace assumes it's not deserved. Grace assumes rather it is deserved. That's the very definition. Undeserved kindness and favor. Aren't you glad God is a God of all grace? He seeks and finds sinners. He accepts you and loves you and has mercy for you. And the angel back in Luke is bringing tidings of great joy for all of us. The deserved poor, the undeserved poor, the sinners, we all need undeserved kindness and grace and favor from God. And it's here, great tidings of great joy. For the Savior is born, who is Christ the Lord. 
Glory to God in the highest. On earth, peace and goodwill toward men. It doesn't matter who you are, where you are, what your economic status is or anything else. Goodwill toward humanity. We don't deserve this. You don't deserve this. Let's get over ourselves and fall at his feet with faith and simplicity of faith and humility and responsive love as he has loved us immeasurably. Because of such is the kingdom of God. How does one value human life? Ask a child and then ask God. Children, a blessing, a joy, as they demonstrate simple humility. Christmas, a blessing, the best time of the year for children. Wonderful, enchanted time of year of hope and love. And love? God so loves us that the angels speak in the, on, a, on a cold night to shepherds of God's love and his goodwill toward us all because a son is given. And you, may you be a child of God by faith. And as a Christ one who is a child, may we become a child again by faith. And we can see the world through that lens that actually reflects spiritual maturity of such is the kingdom of God. And have yourself a Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the old story, the Christmas story. And we thank you for the joy of being like a child, that simplicity. Take away our cynicism. Take away our pecking orders and worldly viewpoints. And may we just find ourselves thrilled with you, responding to your love being like a child again, taken up in your arms and excited for what is around us. And so we thank you for that greatest gift of eternal life and pray that everyone listening truly knows that they have eternal life. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. Merry Christmas. And remember, where the Spirit of God is, there is always hope.